for a relationship to be enjoyable, to be encouraging, to be upbuilding things that we want relationships to be. There needs to be a hard conviction, a certainty of the commitment to each other. You need to know and see evidence that you accept one another, that you are for one another, that you, are, that you can trust each other, that you're willing to do good and sacrifice for one another. A word that describes the certainty in, in a relationship for good is assurance. You have the assurance of the integrity and the robustness of the relationship. If you've ever violated trust in a relationship, you know the fear, the uncertainty, the instability of doubting whether the one whose trust you have violated will accept you. The relationship is unstable, not encouraging. You don't have the assurance of the goodness of the relationship. You don't have the assurance about your standing with the person that you've offended. The lack of assurance tears you down, and in spite of your desire to perform better to win back favor from the offended one, it actually can degrade you, can deter you into attitudes and actions that drive the other person further away. In this passage that we're going to look at today in 1 John, John does address the subject of assurance. And just as I described in terms of how it works person to person, it can work that way between us and God. In that, when we have violated his trust, which we all have, we don't have the assurance about our standing with God. Uh, The lack of assurance can tear us down and wear us down in spite of our desire to, to have his favor. So it's not good for us to lack assurance in our relationship with God. It's necessary for us to grow in joyful maturity in Christ. To lack assurance is to lack the gift Jesus wants us to cultivate and guard and enjoy. So let's pray and prepare our hearts to look at this passage from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. Father, it's only because of Christ that we can be sure of our relationship with you. Because he has removed all of the barriers. There's nothing holding us back from you. But the experience of that, Father, is fragile because we're still so fallible. So would you help us to see clearly from your word today how we can have that assurance and certainty in our relationship with you so that we can continue to grow in joyful maturity into Christ or so that we can embrace him for the first time. Help me to make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Cause your word to go forth with clarity. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So this text, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19, 24. John writes, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, 
that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Thus reads the words of the living God through the apostle John. So we're reading through a letter, and, and so we're, we're always jumping in in the middle of John already having said something that goes before. And so the words, by this, in verse 19, take us back to what he just said in verse 18. Not too shocking. And in verse 18, he said, uh, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. And he's, then he says, by this we shall know. So he wants us to know Something. Good to know something. And what does he say that we'll know? This we know that we love each other indeed and in truth, and in action and in and reality. We shall know that we are of the truth. And when he says that, of the truth, the truth here is the living truth as it is in Jesus. He's saying we shall know that we are truly born of Christ. We have true life in Christ. And he says, and we shall. Reassure our hearts before him, before God. Uh, We will convince our hearts before God, reassure our hearts, or convince our hearts of what? Well, as he just said, that we are of the truth, that we are born of the truth of God. And it it becomes uh, almost a, a phrase that is equivalent to saying that we're in Christ. Because Christ, who is the truth, has recreated us by his truth. Now, why might we need to reassure or convince our hearts before God that we are of the truth? Because John has been saying things like this just a few verses back. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Wow. That's hard. And if we see our brother in need and yet close our heart against him, how does the love of God abide in us? So we might need our hearts reassured because who among us is not hated or failed to love our brothers in Christ? John is saying that if we love indeed in truth and not merely in word or talk, that can assure our hearts before God. That we can be assured before God that we are of the truth by loving in truth doesn't mean that we think that we love perfectly because none of us does. But rather, by putting into action the love God has put in us, we experience an increasing conviction of the reality of God's work of making us more like Jesus. By putting into action the love God has put in us, because before God, we're recognizing that God is the source of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we put into action what he has put into us, we have a deeper conviction of the reality of God's work of making us more like Jesus. That's assurance. Just as faithfulness and diligently putting your heart into your marriage builds assurance of the love relationship with your spouse. So if you grow distant in your marriage relationship due to lack of loving investment and interaction, doubts and uncertainty erode assurance. Because we do often fail to love as we ought, isn't looking to our own efforts to love, indeed and in truth, likely to backfire and decrease our assurance? We are of the truth. In other words, if we're going to look before God at how I'm doing at loving people and I recognize I'm not loving well, it seems like that's going to not give me assurance. So John talks about that in verse 20, the next verse. 
In verse 20, he says, For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So why might our hearts condemn us? Because we know God searches our hearts and sees every imperfect motive as well as our frequent failures to love our brothers and sisters. Yet, what does John say our comfort should be whenever our hearts condemn us? That God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And you say, thanks for trying to comfort me, John, but that's not comforting. That's like, that makes it worse. So what are you saying, brother? Help, help us here. How is this a help to us? Knowing that God knows everything about me is my problem. It heaps on guilt, not assurance. Well, it's clear that John meant to comfort the hearts of those who are truly God's children. So what he's saying is that whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. What he's saying when he says that is when our hearts condemn us of sin, of doubting we could be God's children, his work in making us his children through his son Jesus Christ is always greater. In other words, John's assuming that we already know that what he said before about what Christ has done to save us. So because his saving work is greater than any sin that we can commit, then our heart, our heart finds assurance not in ourselves, but in recognizing God's saving work in our lives. Yes, God knows everything about us. He knew exactly what he was getting into when he saved us through Jesus. We didn't know what we were getting into when we had our kids, right? And so, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's a struggle. But uh, God doesn't have that problem. He knew exactly what, he's, what he was saving us from. God, uh, God is unshockable. He knew exactly all that we would be and all that we would do. He doesn't say, man, if I only knew he was going to be like that, I would have never saved him. That's not something God ever says or thinks because he knows exactly what he had to save us from. And he, in his love, he chose to save us. So that is what our assurance is based upon. If we are of the truth, meaning we are of the truth that is in Christ, the living truth that is in Christ, we should expect to see more and more truth about our sin. So part of it is I will recognize my sin. In fact, that's why John wrote back in chapter 1, don't lie about your sin. Tell the truth about it. Confess it to God. And he'll forgive and cleanse if we're in Christ. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he said, don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the satisfaction for our sins against God. He paid the price for it. John expects, again, his readers to remember what he wrote a few lines ago. So we're we're walking through this a few verses at a time, and and, uh, if you read the whole thing, hopefully you don't forget what John's already said. So as God's children who are of the truth, we don't minimize our sins as if they're no big deal, nor do we maximize them as if they're greater than God. So assurance is not presumption. Assurance is not presumption. Assurance is the conviction that because of Christ's saving work for us, who have believed in him, we are God's children. We keep coming to him for forgiveness and cleansing. That's because we know he is a forgiving God. We know that in Christ he has provided for our forgiveness. And we keep clinging to him for strength to love and live in his truth. So we, we know that we don't love as we ought. And we, we rely upon him to strengthen us, to give us the heart to love as he loves. And we keep growing in that. So as with your own children, 
You don't love their bad behavior or, or neglect of good, right? We don't love it when they do bad, when they do wrong. It's not, hey, I, I just love that. I love it when my kids misbehave. Now, my kids have all gotten older, and they don't misbehave anymore. And I need forgiveness for saying that, don't I? You don't love their bad behavior or neglect of good, but you love them. You want them to confess and turn from the bad to the good. And you want them to be assured of your love for them, even when they disobey. But you don't disown them, at least you shouldn't. And you want conviction of sin, not for them to self-condemn as if they're not your child, but for repentance and right heart. And speaking of the right heart, in verse 21... John writes, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So assurance, confidence before God, similar concepts. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence, that is, boldness before God. Confidence and boldness before God is not arrogance or self-serving demands. It is confidence in his goodness and mercy and power. It's the conviction that he alone can grant the grace we need to abide in his Son, to overcome sin and to love in deed and truth. As the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, have, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So just as we want our kids to come to us with confidence to ask for good things, to help them overcome their struggles and to supply what they need, we want our kids to come to us and ask us for what's good. Not bad things, but good things. Things that help them grow. Things that are healthy for them. And sometimes we all need wisdom in that. So it's not, um, well, we see John explicitly make this connection between our confidence toward God and prayer in the next verse, in verse 22. In verse 22, he says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So our confidence toward God is expressed in prayer. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. So, for example, in close relationships, marriage or close friends, where there is love and trust, you can ask for anything without fear of rejection. Where there is love, respect and trust and honor, you're not going to abuse that privilege for selfish purposes. So don't take this and say, hey, Pastor Gary said in marriage you ask for anything and they'll give it to you. So not anything but good things, things that are right and good. And things that, yeah, things that, the husband says are right, are right, and what the wife says, well, yeah, yeah. I figured I'd get it right. Just making sure we got some wake people in here. <laughs> Truly, in a trusting relationship, we learn we can ask one another for anything that's good and honorable and right, even if it comes from the wife. I'm just digging it deeper, aren't I? My wife is standing at the back door watching, <laughs> probably listening. So where there is love, respect, trust, and honor, you're not going to abuse that privilege for selfish purposes. You will ask for things that you really need, things that are good and right to ask for. All right. So God wants us to ask him for whatever we need to live and serve him and others. And John got that because he heard Jesus say it several times. For example... 
Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus said, part of your ministry as apostles, guys, is to ask for things in my name and the Father will give it to you. He said a little bit later, Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So God wants to give us good things that bring us joy, things that advance his cause, things that allow us to participate in what he's doing. So to ask in Jesus' name is not just words to close a prayer with. It's okay to close a prayer with that. But that's not all it means. It's stating that you believe what you are asking the Father is based on your relationship to him by faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and in keeping with Jesus' purposes, character, and mission. It is saying, I believe that what I'm asking the Father is in keeping with Jesus' purposes, character, and mission. In other words, I know Jesus approves of this prayer, Father. That's why I'm praying it. We shouldn't just end our prayers with it, but start our prayers in Jesus' name. But in this verse 22, John is not specifying praying the words in Jesus' name. What he does say, in keeping with his emphasis on action, not just words, he says, we receive what we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That is the action equivalent to praying in Jesus' name. Because we do what is pleasing to God because we keep his commandments, that's saying... I know that I'm praying according to Jesus' will because I keep his commandments and do what's pleasing to him. Now, as soon as I say that, you say, hang on, John, there you go again, setting these impossibly high standards. Don't you know this is 2014? We're wimps. We don't like words like commandments and pleasing God. How about prayer helps me feel better? Well, actually, prayer can help us feel better especially when we're keeping God's commandments and doing what's pleasing to him because we're much more likely to see the answers because, well, put it this way, to which child are you going to entrust the car? Think of a name right now. The one who is responsible, who shows respect and keeps up with school and home obligations or a lazy, crazy, hazy one who doesn't obey. And the answer is, of course, you're going to trust your car to the student who's more responsible. And so that's how God answers our prayers. Now, he's so good that he'll answer our prayers at times, even when we're in a mess. But when we're praying in Jesus' name, we expect he will give us good things because we're honoring Christ. John explains further what he means by God's commandments in verse 23. In verse 23, he says, and this is his commandment. I don't want you to wonder what his commandment is. This is his commandment. Verse 23, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. We're getting a lot of command words here. So first, notice how John says God's commandment is that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the foundational commandment to begin with, isn't it? If we skip this one, no other efforts to obey God have any value because commandment-keeping only has value to God if you do so in relationship to Him. Commandment-keeping only has value to God as you do so in relationship to Him. And the only way to have a relationship with Him is through faith in Christ. 
Believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, means believing in who he is and what he's done. So believing in the name of Jesus Christ means believing he is the son of God, that he's God's appointed Savior and Lord over all, through taking on human nature, dying for our sins and being raised again in victory over sin and death. Have you obeyed that commandment yet? It'd be a great day to obey that commandment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And because of his death and resurrection, he is perfectly able, mightily able to save. We sang it. He's mighty to save. We don't just sing songs for the fun of it, right? We sing them because we're confessing truth. It's not as if obeying this commandment, the summons to believe, means that you merit his saving grace. Just the opposite. This obedience is confessing that I know it is only by God's mere mercy that my sins were punished in Christ so that his righteousness could be granted to me as a free gift. So the obedience is saying, I know I don't have any hope except for Christ's death and resurrection, his mercy to save. It's kind of like if a disease is spreading in a village and everyone is dying. A doctor who has flown in and announces that he has the only medication that cures the disease says, if you trust me and come to me, I can give you the medication that will save your life. Come and receive the medication and you will live. Those who don't trust the doctor, those who trust in other supposed cures or their, <clears throat> their own efforts, won't obey. But those who do obey do so as an act of desperate, dependent obedience. That's what it means to obey God's commandment to believe in His Son. Desperate, dependent obedience. I'm desperate. I recognize I, the only salvation I have comes through Jesus, not in anything about me that I can do. And I depend upon God to do it. So that, calling that a commandment is just that, desperate, dependent obedience. Therefore, I recognize it is the best thing that I can do is to obey that, that summons to come to Jesus. And John adds, and his commandment, singular, is that we love one another. So, so connected are the commandments that John presents them as one, to believe in Jesus Christ and to love one another. He just says that comes as a package deal. They're together almost like one commandment. Because belief in Jesus means you're embracing all that he is and all that he saved you for. Jesus commanded several times that his disciples love one another. He said, for example, love one another. And in the Greek, that means... Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's like when you get married, you believe in and you trust in your, your spouse. And part of the package is you marry into a new family as well. And you're supposed to love them as your own family because they are your own family, because you married into them. That's what marriage does. It unites two people together, brings families together. And you know what that comes with? A lot of new, wonderful, and weird family members. Amen? <laughs> oh, but they're weird and wonderful. Like Aunt Martha and Uncle Ben. There's no Marthas or Bens in the church. I thought about this. <laughs> Unless you're a visitor today. But everybody's got an Aunt Martha or Uncle Ben. You know, that strange uncle or that weird aunt. <laughs> Thankfully, none of us are the weird ones in the family. Amen? 
or you can hope and pray that you get de-weirded. So you get new weird and wonderful family members in Jesus' family to love. And you've all heard, many of you have heard this before, but to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. Makes sense. So this verse continues building on a major theme in John's letter. Saving faith produces obedience to God because the very character of saving faith is obedience. Faith is not just this, this, this thing that happens to us. It's, it's an act of obedience. It's a reception of grace, but it's an act of obedience. So saving faith produces obedience to God because the very character of saving faith is obedience. Therefore... Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. If you are keeping God's commandments to believe in Christ and to love one another, you are abiding in God, which means you are continuing in faith in Christ. That's what it means to abide, to continue steadfast in faith, to keep believing. Don't stop believing. You are holding fast to Christ. It's not that we're perfect. We know that. It's what do I do when I'm not perfect, which is daily. When do you wander away from him? When you do wander away from him, you keep turning back to him and clinging to him again and again and again. You know that Jesus is always the answer to every question. He's the forgiver of all sin, but he wants us to acknowledge it. Keep coming to him. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So commandment-keeping of God, that was how Jesus expressed his God abiding in him and him abiding in God was by keeping God's commandments, his Father's commandments. Or Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus said, my Father will love him, and we will come to him. We, Father and Son, will make their home with him. That's what it means for them to abide with us, in us. So the evidence that we abide in God and God abides in us is that we keep his commandments. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if God is going to take the trouble to inhabit us, then he's going to be at work in us. He's not going to just sit there and let us go along our merry way. He's going to be at work in us. And that work is, if we're continuing in Christ and he's abiding in us, we'll keep his commandments because God is working to incline our heart to love what he loves And we will do what we love. So it's an issue of love. God causing us to love what he loves. And we'll do what we love. Which is keeping his commandments. Who you abide with. That is who you live with. Spend time with. Hang out with. Is going to influence how you think. What your attitudes are. They will influence your attitudes. Your choices. Your perspectives. You will think like they think. So abiding with Christ and for him to abide in us is for him to influence our thoughts, attitudes, perspectives, and behaviors. It must be that it cannot help be that way. So if God is in my life and I'm abiding in him and he's in me, my behaviors and attitudes are going to reflect that. As slowly as that may manifest or quickly as it may manifest, it's going to happen. In the last part of verse 24, <clears throat> John writes, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. By this we know, by keeping God's commandments, we know that he abides in us. 
And John says, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Because it is by the Spirit that he reveals Christ to us, and by the Spirit that he causes us to love one another. So how in the world can God abide in us? It's by the Spirit. In fact, elsewhere Paul, the apostle, writes, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is, no one can confess Jesus as Lord in truth and submissive trust and love, but in the Spirit. And he also writes, Paul, in another text, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That is, in union with Christ and with each other. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. So the Holy Spirit is the one by whom God abides in us, leading us to trust Christ and to love one another. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called... um, said that he has sealed us by the Spirit. God sealed us. He authenticated us by giving us the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a down payment of our inheritance. It's like the engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, until we acquire the full possession. And that is our assurance. Our assurance is, by the Spirit, God is leading us to keep his commandments. And by the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, He is like the engagement ring, the promise of the full future inheritance. And that's also like the Lord's Supper, the communion meal that we're going to participate in here just now. Because the communion meal represents the past work of Christ to to die for us, salvation by his death and resurrection. It's a current promise of his present abiding with us, It's a promise of our future abiding with him as well in glory. So what we do when we come to take the communion meals, we we are acknowledging that I believe and trust in Christ who took on human flesh, took on human body to die for my sins and be raised again to a new kind of life. We prepare our hearts by confessing our sins to him and confessing our faith and trust in him. So this is a meal that symbolizes the past communion with Christ, the present communion with him, and one day that we'll be with him in full glory. So what we're going to do is we have three tables around the room, one up front, a couple in each corner, and we're going to have a time of worship by song. And during that time, uh, as your heart is prepared, go ahead and come up, take the elements, just take them back to your seat, take them when you're ready, and I'll pray and, and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for that. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have that certainty of assurance of our relationship with you through Jesus. That because he died and rose again, we know that if we put our faith and confidence in him, that we have you abiding in us and we abide in you. We have that forgiveness of sins and that everlasting life. And like any relationship, we constantly need to renew it. Not that we're winning your favor back again and again and again, or not that we're in, hopping in and out of eternal life again and again. But, but that we show the reality of our, our relationship with you by seeking your forgiveness and cleansing and by renewed obedience to your word. So, Father, would you work in our hearts as we sing these songs, as we take the bread which symbolizes the body of your Son, 
in which he perfectly obeyed you. He was the only one ever to perfectly obey you in a human body. And amazingly, he transfers the benefits of that obedience to us. And because of his shed blood by which he said, this is my blood in a new covenant, which is for you. He told us to eat of this bread and drink of this cup as a continual reminder of Christ's saving work to forgive and cleanse us, that we're putting our hope and trust in him, what he's done for us in the past, that he dwells with us now in the present, and one day we'll be with him in full glory in the future. So that's what we mean when we take this. So prepare our hearts, Father, to receive these elements in grace and in truth. Amen.